The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, who's cooler than Neil deGrasse Tyson? Oh, Dr. Patrick Hannaway. I can't believe we got him. I know. Get out of here. Uh-huh. But not really. Oh. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hope I didn't offend Neil deGrasse Tyson. Hmm. Well, if you did, maybe he should email us, reach out, you know? He has my phone number. He does. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty darn good. Cool. And I'm pretty darn excited for what was, what's oh. going to happen here on this podcast. A podcast we call The Lab Report, actually. It's mm-hmm. where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and interviews with Patrick Hannaway. And if you like this interview with Patrick Hannaway, you should probably go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the show because we do a lot of really great interviews, right? So maybe you can... I mean, they some... do great. I don't well, know I how know. great we, we do. We just ask the questions. Fair right, point. Right. Fair point. But maybe hit some stars, rate, review, share with your friends, leave us some feedback there. If you have additional feedback, maybe on how we can improve our interview skills, that would be really <laughs> helpful. And you can send that to podcast at gdx.net. That's right. And to your point earlier, we have the man, the myth, the legend, the dream, Dr. Patrick Hannaway on our show today, and we're super excited. So excited that I think we should probably not waste a lot of time other than to say, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but I have been trying to, you know, over a period of time, change my hairdo, change my look a little bit. And I think my end goal is Uh I would like to have hair just like Patrick Hannaway. I know. And see, that goes unseen. People listening to the show don't know how cool this guy is. So (laughs) it's a good goal. I mean, you don't think he'll mind that I'm going to steal his look, right? No, I mean, no. Well, you haven't actually stolen it yet. It's a work in progress. Well, I, yeah. I am a work <laughs> in progress. I hope to be as smart as he is one day. And that's, as mindful. He's so zen. Yeah. I think uh, that's a good goal for you as well. Thanks. <laughs> what does that mean? I didn't say anything. So, Michael... Yeah. He's here. I know. Dr. Patrick Hannaway is back. <laughs> and for those of you who perhaps live in a cave or under a rock and aren't familiar with Dr. Patrick Hannaway, let's talk a little bit about him. Dr. Patrick Hannaway is a board-certified family physician trained at Washington University. Dr. Hannaway served on the executive committee for the American Board of Integrative Medicine and is past president of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine. For the past 20 years, he has worked with his wife in clinical practice at Family to Family, your home for whole health care here in Asheville, North Carolina. After 10 years as chief medical officer here at Genova Diagnostics, Dr. Hanaway became the chief medical education officer at the Institute for Functional Medicine, where he oversaw the development and implementation of IFM's programs worldwide. Patrick has taught with IFM since 2005 and continues to lead the GI advanced practice module as well as teach in the mentorship program. His support for IFM includes chair of the COVID task force, co-chair of the expert advisory board, and senior advisor to the CEO. 
In 2014, Dr. Hannaway helped develop the collaboration between IFM and the Cleveland Clinic, where he was the founding medical director, then research director, and now serves as a research collaborator at the Cleveland Clin Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. His research interests focus on evaluating outcomes of functional medicine models of care. In 2017, Patrick received the Linus Pauling Award for his outstanding work in medical education and research. And with that, welcome back to the show, Patrick. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Michael. So it has certainly been an interesting last 12 months. Mm -hmm. The last time you were on with us, IFM had just announced the launch of the COVID Task Force, which you are the chair of. Um, can you maybe speak a little bit about the amazing pieces of work and education that your team has created as part of this task force over the last year? Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. I always feel a little bit, um, you know, wondering who's, who's that guy they're talking about? Um, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't he have a life? <laughs> but, um, you know, the past year has been, it's been fascinating for all of us. And, you know, I remember, and, you know, right at this time, you know, so we're in the beginning of March and in the beginning of March last year, I was actually traveling uh, to New York and I was in upstate New York where I also do some work. Some of my other uh, charitable work is the um, chairman of the board of a nonprofit retreat center that focuses on uh, connecting with nature and on the, the, the important role of teachings of the indigenous elders. In relationship to that, it's called the Blue Deer Center, bluedeer.org. Uh, shameless plug here, <laughs> and uh, and and I was I was there, and and people on the planes, uh, you know, coming from New York, were like super paranoid. I'm like, you know, is, is this all about this? You know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Like, the people are really scared about it, and it was obviously just beginning to uh, permeate into the state of New York as one of the epicenters at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And I had no real awareness. Um, it was uh, the following week when things began to ramp up um, that I really started looking at, at the data, started looking at the transmission rates, started looking at the, the, the myriad effects physiologically. And I'm going to come back to that because because I think that you know, it's not only the effects of, of what goes on with the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus acutely, um, but also the the long COVID, um, the post-infectious uh, sequelae, which we see really mirror you know post-viral infections that many of the functional medicine practitioners out there and and post-Lyme um, sequelae that we have been used to seeing mm -hmm. in patients, and we see a parallel happening and a parallel which is a, a very clear point source and a very clear um, uh, acknowledgement by even the top leaders uh, in the NIH of the importance of this. So it's like, wow, what we've learned over this year, what I've learned about, uh, uh, about virus physiology, about that dynamic interaction between the gut microbiome, uh, the immune system and immune resilience and mitochondrial function, energy production. It's like we, we begin to see the systems biology view that we've been, you know, working with for the past 20 plus years, really playing itself out in action with different people and informing, okay, here's this person I need to focus on their gut microbiome, this person I need to focus on immune resilience, this person I need to focus on, on, 
on mitochondrial energy production pathways. This person, I need to focus on vascular issues of, of fiber deposition and, you know, considering well, what's happening in the inflammatory cascade in, in, in relationship to that. So, yes, so many things have been learned and, and what our uh, COVID-19 task force uh, through the Institute for Functional Medicine did is we gathered, um, you know, and, functional medicine practitioners, educators, um, thought leaders, and said, how do we think about this? Mm -hmm. And what we were able to do over the first month, really, uh, was put out um, three um, papers that have been in the peer-reviewed literature, one uh, that talks about an, an approach uh, to look at um, herbs and supplements to be able to help in the, um, in the both in the decreasing the risk of SARS-CoV-2 and to uh, work for early treatment of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so we published that. Uh, Joel Evans was the principal author on that one, or the first author, um, and uh, published that in April. Uh, published a paper, I published a paper with Deanna Minnick uh, on nutrition in relationship to how to nutrition and lifestyle factors to be able to decrease the severity of illness. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I'm stating it that way because it's not about preventing infection from happening. Right. Those are public health measures that prevent infection from happening. But if you get infected uh, or if you get exposed, um, what you can do to minimize the risks. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, first the mucosal immune system and then the, um, then the innate immune system and then the adaptive immune system that are going to have its effect over time and what we can do to support that. We also uh, published another paper, uh, Helen Messier, was the lead on that one um, on testing, you know? And so when we're talking about the beginning of April, like how, you know, what is testing and how do we use it and when do we apply it? And that was a great unfolding and, and helping practitioners to understand how to do it. And then in the, in the summer, um, uh, Robert Luby and Joel Evans uh, and our team, Robert is a, a director of education there at IFM, um, put together a course uh, called a three R's course that is around um, resistance, um, resilience, and recovery, and that is you know how to be able to work with it's a it's a wonderful six hour course uh, online in about 20, 20 different subunits um, that you can watch and learn learn about the immune system, learn about SARS CoV two, how it works, learn about the progression, learn about the mechanism of action because really what we've done in our approach to looking at, at herbs and nutritional supplements is to say, let's use a, um, uh, a pharmaceutical um, development model to, you know, looking at the mechanism of action and where do things work, you know, zinc and zinc ionophores in their relationship or affecting, decreasing the binding of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein onto the ACE2 receptor. And, We've learned so much, and uh, I did not know this much about virology, mm -hmm. um, you know, a year ago. <laughs> right. And I've learned a lot and see how it plays out. And then now we see, you know, having done all that work, now we're deep in the conversation around vaccines, mm -hmm. um, of looking at how COVID nineteen vaccines work and what we've done, and just. Uh, put out on the website is a, a vaccine dashboard 
that really is an assimilation of what we've learned from CDC and WHO and from the UK and the FDA and from the peer-reviewed literature and, and even from some of the companies so that we can give people an understanding of, well, what are um, what are the different vaccines? What is the efficacy in different relationships? Now we're getting some effectiveness data. Mm -hmm. I can speak about the difference between those two things in a moment. Um, but what are what are the issues? I know what how what are the potential risks? What do we know? What do we not know? Um, what are the known unknowns? What is the relationship to decreasing the risk of post-COVID syndrome? We don't know that, and um, and now. With IFM, we're working into getting into some uh, kind of multi-omics research on post-COVID to be able to, you know, work on defining who's at risk and being able to use metabolic signatures to be able to target uh, therapy. So, wow. I yeah. mean. I've probably lot. been talking for 10 minutes. There's a lot of stuff there. <laughs> well, there's so much. And and your team had uncovered such amazing information throughout the whole year. We followed it the yes. entire time, Michael and I. But as it relates to COVID and all of this new information that's been uncovered and that you're still it's still coming out all the time, are there changes that you have made to your personal daily nutritional strategy based on that, like vitamin D or zinc? Are there specific changes you personally made? Sure. Well, and um, as we've, we've talked about a little bit before, um, you know, I would say that, uh, probably for, for 20 years, you know, my, my baseline was like, yeah, a multivitamin and some vitamin D, um, you know, and, and maybe a plant-based antioxidant, um, and omega-3, you know, that, that would be like the baseline that I think that most people need because of deficiencies in, in the, uh, in the nutrients that we're able to get, even eating, you know, you know, good organic foods. So, um, that was sort of my baseline, but I've taken, I've, I've added to that a number of things, uh, that are part of, uh, cancer, uh, cancer prevention and cancer mitigation, um, in my particular use case. Um, but I have actually expanded, um, some of those things during, um, you know, to help mitigate risk and I work with patients around those things. So, mm -hmm. um, for instance, focusing on vitamin D, ensuring that, um, you know, generally it's going to be in the 5,000 I use a day, uh, range to be able to get a vitamin D level in a 50 to 60 range, uh, seems to be the most protective, you know, some people may go a little higher than that, but, uh, and, and if there's exposure, you know, so some of the, the, the first four things I'm going to mention, if there's, if there's exposure, I'm actually changing the, uh, the dosage range mm -hmm. around that, but vitamin D zinc, uh, zinc was not a part of my, my standard protocol, uh, previously, but zinc at, uh, 30 milligrams a day is part of the, the prevention strategy. Uh, the use of quercetin, um, now I've, I've used curcumin, uh, for quite a bit and I think curcumin is great and it's part of our initial um, prevention uh, or, or decreasing risk, um, increasing resilience um, kind of approach zinc because of its antiviral properties and then um, uh, N-acetyl and quercetin, N-acetylcysteine. So I've added N-acetylcysteine to what I do um, not only because of its mucolytic properties but also because of its uh, its role as one of the you know, the, the three primary substrates for the creation of glutathione, um, glutamine, glycine, and cysteine. Mm -hmm. So NAC is great in, in that arena. And then melatonin. Um, 
and so those are things now i have actually been using melatonin uh for its anti-inflammatory property for for the past couple of years as a, as an anti-cancer uh agent or decreasing uh tumor genesis but i have added those other components and if and in my patients when i see something that is someone who's had it had an exposure risk um then i'll double down on double the dose of vitamin d double the dose of zinc double the dose of NAC, going from 600 uh, twice a day to 1200 twice a day mm-hmm. um and uh you know maintaining a dose of, of melatonin curcumin and quercetin mm-hmm. if they have symptoms um you know where we're continuing to play with, uh, you know, looking at the recent papers in uh, JAMA Open on uh, vitamin C and zinc, uh, which was a, a, a paper that has been deemed to say they don't work versus looking, reading the paper and saying, oh, they didn't have the power analysis and they, they stopped the study early mm-hmm. um, rather than looking at what looked like a pretty clear trend for uh, vitamin C being effective, um, but zinc not being so much effective, you know, which just leads to hypothesis generation, you know, where, um, you know, curiously, when you look at uh, uh, in silico studies and binding studies, zinc might actually not be a good thing in treatment. Zinc is clearly a good thing in prevention, but zinc might not be a good thing in treatment. So, you know, we're raising the question, well, that's sort of a plus minus, but we're continuing to learn and be transparent about what we're learning as we go through it. So, you know, those are, uh, those are some things. I would say the other two things that are really big is, you know, as I, I mentioned earlier about uh, the nonprofit I work with, about getting out in nature. Mm-hmm. And you've heard me talk about this last year, you know, and talking about, um, for me, what I found a healing role of being in nature, of improving heart rate variability and and being able to be um, and have anti-cancer properties. But it, clearly its effect on uh on immune resilience and stimulating the immune system uh, to be able to decrease the risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection or severe COVID um, is actually now reasonably well documented. And so I think that's the that's the, the f- one thing. And the other thing in terms of, of optimizing health is you know, those aspects related to sleep, making sure we get sleep because the stressors of not being in, um, you know, let's say communal relationship with other human beings, you know, in an in-person basis and being able to hug and play and, you know, uh, you know sports or whatever it is, um, those stressors are having an effect on, on each of us. And so we really need to develop other strategies to be able to mitigate um, those stressors that are having an effect. Yeah. Uh, all really incredible points. And, um, you know, you also mentioned before how, a diff- each patient you might look at a little bit differently as it relates to SARS-CoV-2, where one person you might be focusing more on the microbiome, another person you might be focusing on inflammation or metabolic health. Do you find that there's any adjustments to the f- overall functional approach with respect to optimizing health in response to coronavirus, or does it really lend itself into this type of approach? Well, if I'm understanding the question 
Michael, I would say it really le- it deepens the awareness that what we've been doing is really the right direction to go. Mm-hmm. And so it's taking the kinds of tools that I've been using for, you know, 20, well, actually now I say 30 years, <laughs> you know, of looking at uh, what's happening in the stool and the microbiome. And while our our tools that we used 30 years ago are more rudimentary compared to what we have now. Um, you know, we, you know, there are ways to be able to understand what's going on with the microbiome, what's going on with nutritional status. And so I, I've continued to use those tools and, and use those as a refinement uh, to be able to help to personalize the treatment. You know, so we have non-specific approaches, not unlike the non-specific aspect of the mucosal or innate immune system, you know, that, that we're using initially. And then, you know, for, for some people, that's going to be enough. And for other people, if they have greater imbalances or greater risk, well, we need to go deeper into, um, into really refining it and be specific in our application. And that's where I find, you know, the functional medicine tools, uh, such as the tools that you all offer at, at Genova Diagnostics, around looking at the GFX test, looking at uh, at something like the NutriVal are particularly useful to be able to refine and be very specific mm-hmm. in the in the recommendations that I make for individual patients. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, you just mentioned the NutriVal, and I think we would be remiss if we didn't kind of emphasize the fact that you were the CMO here at Genova for 10 years and helped to develop what we now know as the NutriVal. Can you speak a little bit about your thoughts on the relaunch of the NutriVal and what your thoughts are? And maybe just talk a little bit about why a functional nutrition evaluation is different than direct. Sure. Well, I, you know, I was um, pretty fortunate. Um, you know, we were approached um, with a group of people saying, you know, can you integrate the components of amino acid analysis that gives us some indication of nutritional status and the organic acid analysis, which gives us a you know, sort of a, a different approach, right? So looking at, um, I like to use the plasma amino acids because that's going to be a little bit more of a, uh, it's going to tell me about the last five five to seven days or so of, of protein and in, in intake on the amino acid analysis. Whereas if I do a urinary amino acid analysis, which is also a good tool available in the Metabolomics Plus, you know, if, if I've got patients who are unable to get phlebotomy, but that's just going to really tell me about more about the last 24 hours of, of nutritional and protein intake. So I encourage them eat what is a standard diet the day right. before. But, you know, so, so those kinds of, we, we put those tools together. Initially, we put them together using this uh, interpretation at a glance that that was based upon the knowledge of, of Dr. John Pangborn, a really brilliant uh, nutritional biochemist. Um, but then as we spent time with it, we said, well, let's go into the peer-reviewed literature and really deeply understand. And, and a couple of naturopaths who were on the team at that point in time, uh, John Furlong and Mary James, uh, did incredible work to be able to just sift through the literature, looking at every single biomarker that we're measuring and seeing its relationship to antioxidant status, B vitamin status, mineral status, uh, and begin to draw relationships and create a, a, a hierarchy of um, that that could inform the algorithms to put, put together there. So, you know, uh, people say, well, I understand, you know, these things, and this is what this biomarker means. And, you know, I look at them and say, like, you know, there's a hundred and 
think 17 different biomarkers that are here, (laughs) you know, and we're matching it against, you know, 36 nutrients or something of that nature. And it's like, my mind doesn't have the capacity to do the calculations of 117 by 36. And I'm kind of (laughs) an an idiot savant (laughs) with numbers. (laughs) And it's not just a table of 117 by 36. I think it's like 117 to the 36th power. Um, So, um, you know, it's like, there's a lot, there's a lot there. And, and it's a great tool that's been developed. And the, the thing that I like about it is it demonstrates that, you know, to a good first approximation, you know, two thirds of the people are going to need magnesium of some level to a uh, first approximation. 35% of people are going to need some B12 and support in that nature. And, you know, but just to pick those two nutrients, but I, when looking at someone, I don't know. Are you in the two thirds? Are you in the 35%? Mm-hmm. And, you know, marching that across everything else. Now I've got a tool that grounds me in it and that I've used for, you know, now actually for me from its original version in, in 2006 uh-huh. when we began <laughs> doing it um, in its uh, kind of experimental form. Um, it works. It applies. It, 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 it shows me differences between people. And I use these, I use those recommendations and, and it helps them. And so, you know, the, the clinical insights that I gain are not only on how to be able to individualize or personalize uh, the nutrient needs for an individual, understand their status and, and meet their needs. And, you know, I, I have to say that I, I do it a little bit more in an impressionistic way. I'm not doing it where, you know, we can go to the second page and look at the suggested recommendations. And I'm, I'm not trying to dial in, you you know, gosh, you need exactly 3000 IUs of, of vitamin A and, you know, 500 milligrams of vitamin C, you know, because I may have a formula that's that's got 5000 IUs of vitamin A and 250 milligrams of vitamin C. And I'm going to use that, you know, because it's a good high quality product. So I'm not trying to get rigid about these things. And I've done that. I've actually had it compounded where it's a, I send in the report and, you know, and that's a great thing to do, but that's more expensive than many people can, mm-hmm. can, mm-hmm. can use and more complicated for a, for a practitioner. So, you know, it's like, I'm looking at the broad brushstrokes and, and I'm always looking at that that kind of the, the, and the initial page that's giving me, you know, what are the, what are the overviews of what the needs are? Or, you know, and now we've got a, a new report coming out that that's really, you know, kind of helping to dial in uh, what are the, what are the areas where we look at uh, antioxidant support, mitochondrial support, inflammatory support, um, you know, redu- you know, uh, toxic exposure and methylation imbalance. And it, it gives me this big functional view of what's happening. Yeah. And you heard me speak earlier about this, you know, the, the kind of the way I'm thinking about it is a triad of, of microbiome imbalance, um, a mitochondrial dysfunction and, you know, immune support uh, or decreasing inflammation as being three components, you know, and, and, and get to see that within the, the NutriVal, get to see those functional imbalances and 
components that are that are laying themselves out. So I really I like the, the new report format because it, it gives me uh, those functional balance scores that I can see at a glance. Okay, here's where I need to focus on what's going on. It's like the work that you did with the GIFX, you know, where you you kind of took my clinical knowledge, my clinical understanding. Not that you were asking me, but it's like, <laughs> but we did. You know, I, can, I, I, I can see it right there. And it's like, okay, this makes sense. And when I show it to the patients, it's like, you know, this is where we're tar- This is where we're focusing. See that number that that's an eight, you know, that's, that's right there on, you know, the need for inflammation support. That's something, you know, that, that tells me this, we got to prioritize and they get it. They, they look at it and they get it. And, and now they know how to be able to even prioritize where, you know, I mean, I may, I may recommend five or six things, uh, for someone, but they can look back and they'll say, well, how do I prioritize these? I can't afford all these. And, uh, it was said to me early on, um, by someone when I was working at Genova, you know, if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. Um, <laughs> and, and so when you give me those functional balance scores, it helps me to prioritize. It helps the patient to prioritize what are the essential things that you need to do first. So I'm, I'm really pleased with, you know, I've used this, this tool, many, many patients over time and, and, you know, talked with other doctors about it. And, you know, one of the little sayings I have to look up, um, our mutual friend Stephen Goldman gave me a book long ago about the origin of, of different sayings. And I'm going to have to look this one up uh, in the book he gave me. The, the proof is in the pudding, you know, meaning, you know, does it work? And I think one of those, one of the huge uh, contributions that Genova's made around this is that they've, they've created a tool uh, that works. It works for, for practitioners. They use it and they find like, wow, I know what to do. And, oh, my goodness, my patient's getting better. Maybe there's a correlation there. And uh, and they continue to use it. And so I, I feel you know, proud to have been a part of the team to develop this. And I'm, I'm pleased that, you know, the current team has been, you know, is taking it forward to the next level. So thanks for your work on it. Uh, yeah. your, <laughs> your input as we've been trying to update a lot of these products has been invaluable, Patrick. So yeah. we're so grateful to yeah. you. And very kind words. We can't say thank you enough for all the support that you've provided along the way. So, um, you know, I have, it's interesting. Well, I, I need to, I need to just jump in for a second. Give <laughs> <laughs> a caveat on that is that, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a paid consultant for Genova no, Diagnostics. Sure, right. I, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I offer, I'm a friend and I offer my perspective because like the work that you're doing is really valuable. And if, you know, I can contribute something that helps that, then I'll do that. Um, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Um, you know, this is a question that I always come back to when we're talking about something like nutritional intervention and supplements and just kind of broadly, do you, do you think it's possible to get all your nutrients we need when, if we craft our diets appropriately, or do you still see that many of us need additional support, even with a, a fairly well-balanced diet? Well, it, it's fascinating too. Um, I think, you know, some of the, there's, there's two aspects. One of it is this term well-balanced diet and what is a well-balanced yeah. diet? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I would say that, you know, most, more than 80, probably 90% of the patients who come to me um, tell me that they're eating a good, well-balanced diet. 
you know, and then I look at their diet history. I'm like, I don't think this actually fits that category, (laughs) you know? So, um, so there's that, and there's, there's so much room for improvement across our culture in terms of, you know, if we can get to, you know, a, a whole foods, you know, primarily plant focused diet with a diversity of colors, you know, and we're doing that, like we're going to help the public health tremendously with that so it's like yes we can make a huge shift by doing that i read a a thing from chris kresser the other day 60 percent of our of our dietary components are an ultra of our dietary intake is in ultra processed foods at Mm -hmm. this point in time and so it's like yeah there's a huge amount that can be done there now, when I'm working as a clinician, I'm working with people who are on the sicker end of the continuum and, you know, and, and many of them are eating a pretty good diet and, and working on that. But then, then again, what's well balanced where I've moved from the, the idea of eating nine fruits or vegetables per day, nine, you know, and people look at me like their <laughs> eyes are bug out nine, seriously, nine <laughs> portions. How am I going to do that? Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I said, you know, I want you to take a look at your, at your plate, at least in one meal and have five different colors on your plate. And it's like, just try to keep it simple. I mean, um, you know, it's like, well, that yellow from the, from the, um, from the yellow pepper and that orange from the carrot. Yeah. Those are two different colors. It's okay. You can count those as two different colors, mm-hmm. you know, and, but as I'm doing that, um, what I've actually moved to a deeper understanding around microbiome diversity is that, you know, what I realized for myself is that like nine, nine portions, you know, per day, but it's like every day I'm eating cabbage and Brussels sprouts and broccoli and arugula and, you know, and maybe some, some peppers, mm-hmm. um, you know, have some, have some various, uh, other kinds of, uh, um, condiments and, and spices and things on it. Um, but it's, it's actually not that diverse. I'm like, wow, it's like mostly green and, and it's mostly the same just about every day. Um, and I realize, oh, uh, listening to some others, it's like, try to eat 30 different kinds of vegetables each week. Hmm. And it's like, that's a challenge. You know, like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm working on that. That's a challenge, yeah. you know, but yeah. that is actually what is going to st- stimulate the diversity in the microbiome. And obviously the micro, the diversity of food and the diversity of phytonutrients and bioflavonoids, that's, what's going to determine the diversity in the, in the gut. And, and so to, you know, the first part, last part of your question you know, Michael is like, well, what's a well-rounded diet? What's a well-balanced <laughs> diet? Right. You know, and, and, and we're learning more about that. Then there's, there's the issue. And we've, we've talked about this in, in, in lectures that I've given over time, but, you know, from the, um, the U S uh, um, department of agriculture, you know, has shown that there is a depletion in the nutrients in our soil uh, that ranges from 35 to 70% between 1950 and 2000. Mm-hmm. And so we have this depletion of nutrients from the farming and the way in which we've done things. Now, do I believe that organic is better? Yes. I mean, the data is pretty good with that and I'm a big fan of environmental working group and you know carry around my little car that has the dirty dozen and the clean 15 so i can avoid those things but you know and, and regenerative farming is a is a great option to begin to deepen and you know as uh 
you know, one of my mentors, Joe Pizzorno talks about, you know, eating local foods and eating foods that you're growing yourself yeah. are going to have a much wider variety of the, um, of the phytonutrients and bioflavonoids than you're going to get in the, in the store-bought food. Um, so I don't think that we can get what we need simply from our diet. I think that we need to look at how do we support that. And then across a population of people, you know, that as we're dealing with people who have complex chronic disease, the, the power of nutrition to be able to modify these disease states is far, far greater than we imagine. And I would even say, like, I've been talking about this. I was talking about nutrition my first year in medical school in 1983. And I know when I went to Cleveland Clinic and got to be work, you know, working with a team of nutritionists and coaches, I saw, wow, it's even bigger than I thought it was. Hmm. The impact of being able to use uh, food and nutrition and nutrition and, and nutrient support to be able to create huge shifts in complex chronic disease. And, you know, and we've actually, we were able to show that through, uh, you know, the publications we've done, you know, demonstrating an improvement in patient report outcomes measures, um, you know, that we published in, uh, what was it, 2019 in, in JAMA mm -hmm. Open yeah. um, around those improvements. So, Yes. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, to, do we still need, you know, most of us need some additional nutritional support. The answer is yes. Well, in that same vein, if I can just kind of build on that. On the heels of this pandemic, I think people are starting to finally recognize that, you know, functional medicine and systems-based approaches are the true North Star moving forward. And you just talked about the importance of nutrition, and we talked earlier about relationships and stress. And, you know, in your vast experience, what do you think which of those factors kind of gives you a be the best outcome or is the most impactful as it relates to chronic disease and health? Well, if we're going to rate them, <laughs> I, I, would, I, I would say that, you know, I talk about you know, nutrition as a taproot, you know, looking at that, that functional medicine tree and looking at the roots, you know, so I think about it as the roots that are the intrinsic roots. And so that's going to be those aspects of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and meaning and purpose in life. And, and I think nutrition is the taproot on that. You know, it's the, it's the first thing, it's the key thing that needs to, you know, be, be worked with. And within that, you know, I found early in my career um, where I think it was Leo Galland and uh, um, gosh, I can't remember. I mean, I know Stephen Barry was involved and Jeff Bland in the conversations, you know, but it's like, pick one tool and become really familiar with it. And I, and what I found was in some of my patients who I was focusing on, on that nutritional component, they weren't getting better. And it's like, Oh, it's because their gut's not working, you know? And so we can be putting all the right things in, mm -hmm. you know, but if they don't have the capacity to digest and absorb and have some balance in their microbiome, it's actually not translating into their to, into metabolic change. You know, so working with the gut and focusing on nutrition, I still think is the key first step to be able to do. Now, what I've seen on what I've known since med school and what I've been working with more is around those aspects around stress and the interrelationship of, of its effect, probably from a 
from the, the neuroplasticity of the way in which the inputs are received, including from our gut into our brain and then translated into the HPA axis and, and you know, sympathetic versus parasympathetic tone. And so I spend more time on that now because it's, it's people don't have an awareness of it. And so those are really the top two things that, that I focus on with just about every patient. And then, you know, and then there's other factors uh, that come in there and, and you can't, you know, if someone's not sleeping, you can't, you can't avoid that. Mm-hmm. You know, so in, in the patient, you know, because we see that it increases insulin resistance, it increases in inflammation, you know, it, it increases that sympathetic o- overdrive and tone and affects mitochondrial function. So, you know, it's hard to kind of rank them in, in priority. And you need to think about all five of those roots that are there and they sit in the soil and is the soil a nutrified soil? Mm-hmm. I'm speaking right. metaphorically here, right. or right. is it a soil that has, you know, antigens or infe- hidden infections or toxins, whether they're, you know, mycotoxins or organotoxins or, or heavy metal toxins, you know, and even going to and or you know toxic relationships or toxic um, patterns mm-hmm. uh, that people have developed you know uh, historically, so you know I continue to think about it from that systems uh, standpoint, and I I think that we're beginning to see a deeper exploration into the relationship between that uh, from a view and then well how do we gather the multi-omics data um, to be able to get a picture of of how each you know a person can present with let's say post-covid syndrome Mm -hmm. and it's like SARS-CoV-2 and the immune reaction was the stimulus of the imbalance and they may have you know some some fatigue and mitochondrial dysfunction but this person had a pulmonary embolism and this person you know, can't think anymore. And this person has postural or aesthetic tachycardia syndrome. And this person is itching all the time. They're different mm-hmm. in terms of, of what their what their genome and what their phenotypic expression is. And so we use the baseline tools to be able to look at the microbiome and the and immune resilience and then how to support mitochondrial function. But then we've got to dial it in after that. And you know and 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 we've got to look at well, what, what are the underlying factors and what are the intrinsic things that they're doing in terms of their modifiable lifestyle factors that we can get a handle on. Um, so, you know, it's it's multifaceted, but I've, I've, I've sort of answered the question of like, well, what are the top two? But, you know, for, for the, the patient, you know, who I'm seeing, you know, so yesterday who at, at 26, has kind of lost meaning and purpose in their life. Well, I got to pay attention to that. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. even even mm-hmm. though they've had a they've got post COVID and they had a PE, you know, and they're having some difficulty sleeping. I'm focusing on those. But the biggest thing in terms of their uh, mood imbalances are are kind of losing meaning and purpose. I can't avoid that. So, so Patty, to answer the question, like on a population basis, you know, it's nutrition and stress. But on an individual basis, it may be one of those other factors that I have to really prioritize to be able to meet their needs. And that's about listening to their story. Right. right. Yeah, it's absolutely. Very impactful. Yeah. And, you know, I think about those modifiable lifestyle factors and it is particularly just going to bring it full circle and 
today's day and COVID time, you know, one of those is is relationships and the difficulty in trying to, to nourish mm. and satisfy that bucket. What are some maybe clinical practical tips or tools that that you've found that have it, to foster that relationship modifiable factor, you know, especially today? Well, it's the it's the comma, especially today, that is um, <laughs> is is really the um, the kicker in that mm-hmm. because you know certainly the role in, in relationship of community and connection uh, of family you know is is essential you know to be able to do that and we've found that you know and and the data is now showing. Um, what was it? I, I saw that in, in Japan, you know, more people will die of suicide than will die of, of COVID. Um, actually, I think it was it was startling that that I haven't sourced it, but the number I heard was that more people will die of suicide in a month in Japan than died in a year from SARS-CoV-2. Right. Um, now, I don't know what the baseline rates were. I mean, I got to look at the data, but it is highlighting the degree of that isolation has had an effect and while you know we're sitting here on this podcast and we we can each even see each other in it it is different than connecting in person mm-hmm. um i will be seeing you know probably i think just the fifth person in person in my office uh, in a couple of hours i've done it all virtually um since mid-march mm-hmm. and it's different and it's it's necessary to do uh, this through zoom but you know it is it is not the same as being in person mm-hmm. so finding ways to be in person and relate to each other you know and and so as uh, some of us have had vaccines you know it, it sort of eases things a little bit um, you know, it, it, like the risk of transmission, the, the, the fear and concern decreases, you know, for me having been vaccinated. And, and so I don't feel as, as on edge about things, but, you know, I'm still having to have a clear conversation with each person I meet in relationship to, you know, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, you know, but where, where I've gone for the past 10, 11 months is outside. It's like, well, let's go outside. Let's go for a walk. Let's be in nature and let's, you know, connect there. And, you know, we'll be six feet apart and not wear a mask and be able to joke and play and, you know, and sit at a picnic at opposite ends of a picnic table and share a meal. Um, you know, I think there's ways to be able to do that um, without having to sort of be oppositional or, you know, and then there's some people who they don't want to wear a mask. So at they're still human beings. They don't want to wear a mask, but I can still be outside and hang out with them and, and do things in a way and that that allows me to connect to them. And I think that that connection is is absolutely essential. So I'm going to come back, you know, sort of full circle to the conversation or to mentioning this, you know, nonprofit retreat center that I work with, you know, and we haven't been able to be having Mm-hmm. you know, the, the kinds of retreats that we wanted to have, but we've begun to, you know, bring people back, you know, separate rooms, like a hotel, distant dining, you know, spending time in nature, sitting around the fire outside, distance from each other, but connecting and talking to each other and dealing with, well, what's changing in our lives. So, um, you know, for me, the, uh, the, 
the issues around SARS-CoV-2 and all the concerns and the questions and even the polarity around vaccines and masks and other things. It's like, we need to be in conversation with each other mm-hmm. and, and listen to different kinds of opinions because in every opinion, whatever, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, there's an element of truth or a grain of truth in it. And so if we want to connect to each other as human beings, we need to you know, be able to listen and care about what someone else thinks as opposed to being righteous and assume that, that no, I know the truth and you don't, and I'm going to convince you of it because you know i i say to people in different settings like how does it feel to you when someone is righteously telling you this is the truth and you've got it wrong does it make you feel like you want to connect to them does it make you feel open does it make you feel good no it doesn't so you know so don't do that with other people either even if you think you know the one right truth because ultimately there's many different perspectives and, you know, kind of getting a little more um, metaphoric and philosophic about it. You know, I've, I've looked at it and I see people as a diamond and there are many facets on the diamond. And we actually have to have a circle to go all the way, all the way around the diamond to see the facets. And if there are facets that I'm not seeing that, that Michael's seeing, you know, it doesn't mean that Michael's wrong. It may be that I'm just not able to see that facet because I'm not on that side of the diamond looking at it. Mm-hmm. So let me make that, you know, awareness that what other people have to offer may have some value that I'm not aware of. Um, you know, we're kind of off topic, <laughs> but, you know, it's something that, that's really important to me because it's like, you know, the, you know, an underlying aspect is, you know, how, how do help patients, you know, mitigate the stressors of today. And one is, you know, being in nature and the other is, you know, having, being in relationship to other people and not assuming that you're right, but just really caring and listening to other people. It's so profound. Yeah, it's def- so important. And it's, you know, it's that, that lack of interpersonal relationship, I think, in the past year that, that I think has worried me the most, even with children not going to school. So I think that's really profound. Yeah, very. I mean, it's timely, timely wisdom that we need, especially given, you know, current events and how polarized everything is right now. It's, it's a shift that's in right. worldview that I think is definitely needed. So that's right. I appreciate those thoughts. And, and really, Patrick, our love and respect for you cannot go overstated. And we're just so grateful to have spent any time. <laughs> time with you today, but we do have one last question. Yeah. So we do always end with a, a little bit of an off topic question. Last time, I think we asked you about sandwiches, which provoked you did. Incredible. You did. I'm already thinking about it. My sandwich changed. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm sure you've been listening to each one of our podcasts. I'm sure you uh-huh. have the time for that. So you would know that we have moved from sandwiches to a different subject, which lends itself to the question, how do you feel about soup? And do you have a favorite kind of soup? So, yes, I have. I love soup. Soup. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually. And I, and I knew you were going to ask this question. Oh, and I thought about. I thought see. about. Well, where do I go with this? <laughs> and and what I thought about was a dear friend of mine who has run a, a soup kitchen and a food bank, who, you know, literally thirty five years ago, more than that, gave me a a, a mixtape that I still have, although I don't have a play to play it anymore. And it's called Music to Eat Soup By. Oh, and wow. uh, and it's just like, it, it sets the tone. 
And so I would say that historically, the soups I have loved have been been more uh, um, butternut squash and pumpkin based uh, soups with a little cream in it that are rich and just warm. Mm-hmm. Um, but really over the past two years, the soups have gone much more towards uh, using bone broths and and just lots of different vegetables, you know, as many vegetables that are there. And it's sort of like clean out the fridge. We're going to have soup mm-hmm. uh, with everything that's there. And, you know, I'm able to get, you know, my definitely five different colors and oftentimes 10, 12 different kinds of, uh, of, of vegetables in that soup at one, at one point in time and just letting it be on a low simmer, you know, throughout the day. And I've particularly had a cold winter here, um, not as bad as, as in other places, but it's been relatively cold and more snow. And so when there's you know snow on the back porch and it's cold, you know, and just have that pot of soup simmering all day long and just, you know, having three, four bowls of soup through the day as the nourishment, mm-hmm. you know, that's made from a, from a bone broth or a, 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 like a chicken bone broth um, where we take the, the, the chicken chickens that we use and we keep all the bones and we make our own bone broth. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's really where uh, it, it's sort of like the essence of nourishment. See, always the best answers to I these know, questions. I know, and I think we have to bookend the entire question because I don't think that that can be topped ever again. So That's I right. think we'll have to Moving on from soup. Else. <laughs> Moving on. That was a, a soup mic drop right there, Dr. Hanaway. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. But again, we're so thankful to have you on the show, Patrick. We love you, and thanks for spending your time with us. Well, I, I want to end by just... Um, you know, sharing with, with people a, a simple story um, for me about about Genova and and how this all came to me and and that is in in 1991 I was uh, traveling in Nepal and India and Sikkim and I came down I got a, a parasitic infection um, actually. Um, turned out uh, six different parasites. Uh, I was uh, working in New Mexico, um, finishing uh, my residency training there. And a colleague of mine's, and I'd seen a couple doctors and not gotten better, literally had lost 30 pounds. And it was not, Mm. it was not subtle, but um, nothing was able to help. And he said, well, there's this um, lab in Asheville, North Carolina. And I you know, he, he got a, a kit and I sent a sample in and they found these six different parasites and it was able to help me um, tremendously. And that was kind of it. And it was sort of fortuitous um, that um, we moved to Asheville, North Carolina, five years later. And I'm like, I think that lab that I used <laughs> was here. And I searched it out and began to talk with the, the doctors on the team there at the time. And I began to learn from them. And that was really the genesis of my, you know, uh, beginning to understand about, about functional medicine and this kind of approach. And so I owe so much of my, um, my learning and the opening of my awareness to you know, Genova Diagnostics in the work that uh, that you've been doing and that helped me to be a part of it for for a while and, you know, want to continue 
to support you in that journey. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you so much and appreciate that. And what a great story to end on. So, um, you know, hopefully uh, we can convince you to come back on some. Yep. I have I have so many questions Lists. for you. Lists and, of um, questions. I, you know, some of them are, are probably just more from a parenting standpoint or <laughs> things like that. So I feel like there's always <laughs> wisdom to be gleaned. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Patrick. You bet. Thank you. Well, that does it. I guess we have to come up with a new question. Yeah. A new fireball. <laughs> We're done with soup. What's funny is that the fireball was invented because of Patrick. And every time we ask it to him, we have to retire the question. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I know. But I mean, how cool would it be if uh-huh. we just got him like every other week for five minutes to be like, just ask a parenting advice question? <laughs> you know, like how, how do you get the kid to remove the training wheels and start practicing well, without the training wheels? Wouldn't you like to hear Patrick Hanaway yes, answer that? Yes, I will say. I'm sure he's very busy and may not have time every week to come in. But if anyone's going to give parenting advice, I would love to hear it from Patrick Hanoi because he's so profound. Yes. Profound and brilliant with great hair. He's got it all. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about the newly redesigned NutriVal. Yeah, the best nutritional assessment just got even better. Move over, sliced bread. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. What is your favorite type of bread? Is, is this the new firewall question? No, I'm just asking you. Oh. Pumpernickel. Pumpernickel? Uh-huh. Out of all the breads. Yeah. It tastes like chocolate to me. I don't know what's wrong with my taste buds. Chocolate bread. So you've got the entire spectrum of flavors of bread that mm-hmm. taste like bread. And right. you say, my favorite is bread that doesn't taste like bread. That's right.